Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And we're joined today by Shalini Kantaya, the director of a film showing at MIF called Coded Bias, about algorithms, machine learning, and AI. Thanks for joining us, Shalini. Thanks so much for having me. I guess just to start off with, most people would be somewhat aware of the, you know, maybe the superficial role that algorithms play in their lives. Like if you Google a mattress and suddenly the algorithm decides that you want to see mattress ads for the rest of your life. Or, you know, if you go on YouTube and watch a video about woodworking and the YouTube algorithm decides you want to become a neo-Nazi. Before you started making this film, what was your understanding of algorithms and what inspired you to make it? I had no understanding of algorithms. (laughs) I feel like many of us, I was just sort of walking, sleepwalking through these technologies that are making decisions and predictions about our behavior all of the time. And quite by accident, I came across the work of Joy Bolamwini and the author of Weapons of Math Destruction, Kathy O'Neill. And that sort of sent me on this down the rabbit hole of uncovering the dark side of big technology. Shelley once claimed that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. In the 21st century, has poetry been displaced by algorithms? Well, I can't say that, but I I can say that human discernment has been placed by algorithms much to our dismay. And what I was most terrifying in the making of this film is that algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. And we saw that in the film. And what's so terrifying about the way AI is being deployed as sort of these invisible gatekeepers that are sort of changing the fate of human beings is that they have this capacity to disseminate bias at scale. And that has the capacity to really hurt people. And hopefully in Coded Bias, what I hope to do is not just explain some of the science and sort of pull back the curtain on the on these sort of 
big data-driven technologies and help us all understand this so that we can be educated, but also show that we have real power to shape and to govern how these technologies are used in the 21st century. And it's my hope that um, we do more to show that these technologies are in in keeping with our democratic ideals, with democracy and with civil rights. In Australia, we've just had something of an algorithmic political scandal where the government employed an algorithm to detect welfare cheats. And uh, it went somewhat awry and identified a lot of people who had never taken anything more than they were entitled to, but uh, led to a lot of misery and some even some deaths. What are some of the really real world ways that these machine learning algorithms have affected people uh, in the United States and elsewhere? I think one of the startling moments in my film that I don't think I ever recovered from watching however times we edited this scene was... A 14-year-old boy, black and British, in London, in school uniform, a child, who got stopped by five plainclothes police officers, and we catch it on, on tape. They're stopped because of facial recognition, the test of facial recognition. And Big Brother Watch in UK did a study, and it's, it, it, this was upwards of 85% misidentifications, upwards of 2,000 wrongful stops. And... This just has such an impact on people's lives. There was a man here in the U.S. that was stopped, arrested in front of his friends and neighbors, held for 30 hours, and never asked for his license because facial recognition had had misidentified him. One of the Sri Lankan bombers was misidentified. A, A woman in Boston was studying for her exams, right? She's not even in Sri Lanka. And she gets pulled out of a class and identified as a bomber from Sri Lanka, wrongly identified because of facial recognition. And so what is so frightening about these technologies is that they have racial bias, they have gender bias, and yet they're deployed (laughs) in excess on communities of color who have the capacity to be most hurt by them. And so, I mean, I think facial recognition is the technology that's easiest for all of us to understand. But I think, you know, these these algorithms, they're working in, in all kinds of ways that are invisible to us and that are opaque and it makes the discrimination harder to fight. Shalini, those are examples of the use of this technology which uh, misidentifies those it's meant to target. But there's also issues with, I guess, when these algorithms and this facial recognition technology actually functions well and properly. So what are the, what are the set of concerns in that domain where this technology is actually working, you know, let's say more efficiently? Well, then we have perfect invasive surveillance. <laughs> we have um, the kind of stuff that the the Stasi in East Germany would make them look like a, they had a light touch and they were really cute because this kind of invasive surveillance is incredible. You can, a, pol- a, a police officer can take a picture of someone at a protest and put it into a database and pull up someone's social media profile. And you can see how the bias is one issue and then abuse is another issue. The the scenes of people being pulled up by the police uh, it was like stop and frisk, essentially, that policy in action. But in this age when we're apparently trying to get away from that sort of thing, 
it seems like the police have just automated it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm a New Yorker and we know the, the impact that stop and frisk, the disparate impact that it's had on Black and Latino community here in New York. And so I feel that it's it can be terrifying. It can be a new form of racial profiling. And the scary part is, is that we're giving computers this absolute authority, sometimes with no human in the loop. And, and that can be because of the blind faith that we have, that computers always make the right decision. And so we really have to question, um, as Kathy O'Neill says so well, our our blind faith in big data. There was a, something else you raised in the film was the way that uh, like hiring algorithms, uh, especially Amazon, for example, would automatically exclude any women who applied for a job in tech simply because they'd never hired women in those jobs before. So that's what it had learnt. Uh, there was the, an example of a teacher who had won awards all through his career, but when they brought in the algorithm to judge his uh, performance, it found him lacking. It reminded me of people talking about being blacklisted as communists in the past and uh, how they couldn't get a job and they never knew why because they didn't know that they were on this blacklist. What are some of the emotional impacts that you saw from people who were affected by uh, algorithmic bias? You know, it's it's one of, I, I think the example you give is, is a powerful one because in the film, I show that example, like you said, that, that the algorithm had sorted out all women unknowingly picking up on the inequalities of the past, right? They didn't mean to program it to be sexist, but... That's the past we came from, right? Who got hired, who got promoted, and the data showed that. And so when we were, when the algorithm was trained for success, it discriminated. And I think the scary part is if you're on the other side of that, it's very hard as Ravi says in the film, to take the egg out of the pudding, you know, to say an algorithm has been involved in that process. And so sometimes we get this feeling, why, why do I get keep getting discriminated in by jobs. And it could be that there's some algorithmic hit. You got, you're a false positive or a false negative, and it was wrong about you, and you have no way of, of knowing that or correcting it. And so um, we need some laws. We need some legislation. We need some oversight. We need some tools that will reign in the power of big tech. They have too much power. And that's what I realized in the making of this film. Like, I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. In terms of putting those protections in place, there's that old saying that you should never pick a fight with someone who buys ink by the barrel. I think updating that for the modern context would probably involve a very complicated metaphor about container ships or something. Is there a real appetite for governments to address these issues, given that these companies can sort of make or break political careers? I think the tide is turning but the tide is turning because people all over the U.S. and all over the world are fighting for racial justice and equality. It's the largest movement for equality that we've seen for 50 years. And I owe them, I owe, you know, especially young people in the streets, a debt of gratitude because it is this combination of sort of brave scientists like the genius black women in my film 
who use the power of their research to take on big tech and to do the kind of science that I personally can't do, but also to connect that science to why it matters and who it matters for. And to say, like, we need to understand the science and we have to fight for the people who could be hurt by it. And I think we have a real chance. I'm incredibly hopeful because I believe that we have a moonshot moment. We, the people, have the power to tell big tech that we want them to commit to democratic practices and principles and to our civil rights. We want to see our civil rights encoded in the technologies that they're deploying at mass scale. We do not want to live under the kind of invasive surveillance that we see in China as citizens of a democracy, nor should we. And we are at this pivotal moment where it is really up to, to you and, and me to do that work. Martin Luther King says, uh, said that, that, you know, the arc of history bends towards justice, but it's actually us that has to do the bending. And what we're seeing is a mass movement of people who are doing that. And I think that this is a moment where we have to push legislators to, to actually push big tech, to actually regulate this industry like they regulate every other sector of society, at least here in the U.S. where we have no laws, essentially. Speaking of China, there's a sort of bizarre black mirror-y moment in the film when you speak to a woman in China about their social credit system, of which she's uh, apparently a big fan. Could you explain what social credit is? Yes. Um, I feel like in the, in the film, there's sort of three different approaches to data. There's China that has unfettered access to data and, and to your information and this sort of authoritarian approach. And what they're doing is sort of using facial recognition in concert with a, a social credit score. Basically, it's kind of like what Kathy O'Neill des describes as algorithmic obedience training where if you, your behavior and your friend's behavior gets scored. And according to that, you can be denied certain benefits in society, like getting on a train or getting on a plane. And you can walk into a store and pay with things with your face. And while it seems like a dystopian reality, it's just exactly that, a mirror of where we're going to. And I think we all need to look at ourselves and say, what, are, what part of our humanity are we giving up to this race of towards efficiency? And I think that the protests that are happening around the world are calling us to build a culture that is based on human rights. That is the inherent value of human beings, black life included, and with that are our inalienable rights. And if we believe that fundamentally, that this is what civilized society should be based on in the 21st century is the inherent value of every human being and with our, our inalienable rights, then it's not always about efficiency. Sometimes we have to say screw efficiency and screw Jeff Bezos making a trillion dollars because that should be illegal in our lifetimes. Like no one needs to make that much money. We need to rein this in. And so what I'm saying fundamentally is we're at this pivotal moment we, where we have to decide whether we want a civilization based on human rights and human dignity 
or whether we're going to race towards efficiency. And it looks like we're choosing the latter. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're talking to Shalini Kintyre about her film Coded Bias. Something you talk about in the film is uh, while China has this sort of dystopian system, in a sense in the West we're subjected to the same sort of systems. We're just at the mercy of capital rather than the state. Uh, Could you speak to that? I've said before, the kind of information that Facebook has about us, that Google has about us, it makes the East German Stasi look like they had a light touch. And we shouldn't feel any better to have so much information in the hands of corporations just because it's not in the hands of the state. And also that data is getting brokered and sold and there aren't any regulations around that. It can start with one company and and get into the wrong hands. And so there's a real danger and we, we need protection. One question posed in the film is who owns the code? And uh, that made me think of the open source movement where these sorts of softwares and technologies are developed on a kind of public basis. Do you think one of the ways of addressing this uh, corporate dominance of the code is through, I guess, uh, more public participation and control of the code itself? I don't know how to answer that. What I do know is that A lot of the decisions that are being made by technologists, by a small group, small homogeneous group of people, should actually include a lot, uh, a, a larger pool. That means civil society, that means ethicists, and we need legislation so that it's not up to big tech to govern big tech, that a larger group of people is, is, is aiding in those decisions of what gets coded. And the people who are coding are just doing that. They're not making big ethical decisions. What has the reaction from big tech been to the film? Uh, has it uh, gotten a positive response? I don't know that I've shown it to them. I mean, I, I have not yet had a Silicon Valley screening, but I will say that The response has been really warm. I mean, many people in tech who work in tech came up to me during the Sundance screening. I I had the benefit of having a real screening and said, you know, you, this is a conversation we've been having internally and you made a conversation that we can have together. And I think that I know a lot of people who work in the industry and they're not bad people. They're aware that this is going on and they just need an extra push from us to do something about it. You've given an account of how you uh, came to have uh, interest in the subject. What is it do you think that was most important or revealing about what you discovered as you went through the process of making the film? I think that I realized that there had never been a film like this before that sort of breaks new ground on widespread racial and gender bias in AI. And really that our technology has a point of view, what uh, Joy Balamini calls the coded gaze, which is the white male gaze of our technology and how that influences our lives in big ways. If an algorithm is, can be defined as a technology which uses historical information to make a prediction about the future, what do you think it means if just a handful of Chinese and US-based corporations are predicting that digital future? Well, one of my my favourite films is, is a sci-fi film called Gattaca. And the reason that I, I find such offence to using past data 
to predict the future is it creates this sort of what Meredith Broussard calls this sort of algorithmic determinism. You know, our past don't define our future. Uh, we know that we go on to be the first among us to go to college. We achieve things that past has no indicators for. We break molds. That's what human beings do. That is the beauty of our lives. And I feel like the, the danger of having these algorithms that are constantly using past data to make predictions about the future is that it keeps us from wildly different worldviews. It keeps us from, it keeps us from the full realization of our humanity. And, you know, all of us just to, say that I'm not someone who hates technology. I, I made this film because I, I love technology. I just want technology to work in a way that is inclusive and that promotes values of civil rights and democracy. And I think the two are, are not mutually exclusive. I think that we can have cutting edge technology and we can have safeguards on our civil rights at the same time. And I think the women in our film, sort of the brilliant and badass scientists in Coded Bias, have taught me that we need to demand ethics in the technologies that will shape our future. Let's leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Shalini. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Andy, that was a very interesting chat. Yes, Kim. I wonder, are people able to see the film? They can. It's at MIF. However, it has sold out. You can go to codedbias.com and uh, see if there are any other screenings happening. And uh, I'm sure it will be released to the world shortly in other formats. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Cam here. Just to let you know that since we recorded this episode... MIF have actually released more tickets for this film. So if you go to MIF.com.au, you can check it out at the Melbourne International Film Festival. Uh, Andy, very fascinating stuff. It affects us in lots of different ways. Indeed, Cam. One thing that uh, was in the film that I uh, I feel like I should mention so that my song choice makes sense is uh, that uh, story of the the Russian who sees the, the nukes on his screen. Oh, yes. Yes. And makes the decision not to uh, retaliate. Not an algorithmic determined decision. And just the idea that uh, if the algorithms had been in charge, perhaps we would have a... Uh... We'd be having quite a different conversation, wouldn't we, Cam? All right. Well, that is all we've got time for. We'll be back next week. Global Intifada is up next. Goodbye.
Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a fuss is a crowdsourced craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. Hey all you mob, it's Dr Mark Winnetong here. Coronavirus has certainly changed the way we live, work and connect. These changes can be hard for some of us and can make us feel no good in our head or spirit, like sad or worried all the time. Some of us might already be dealing with other things like sickness, trauma, and this can make it really hard for us to feel good about anything at the moment. If you're feeling like this, remember, it's okay to ask for help. Have a yarn to someone you trust, like your family or an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health worker. You can also call Beyond Blue, Lifeline or the Kids Helpline to talk to someone or look at some helpful information at headtohealth.gov.au on the internet. A 3CR supporter.